So it's been a few weeks uh, since we've been together. I was gone last week. Um, and so I think it's been a couple of weeks since we were where we are right now. And um, we're coming back to part two of a message that I gave, um, I think it was at the end of July, called One Flesh and God's Passion for Us. Um, as you guys know, we're in this large section in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 that deals with a lot of really sensitive issues about our sexuality. Um, and if you didn't listen to that message, I want to appeal to you to go back and listen to it. It's really important. This is an issue that is so crucial for us. I mean, every issue that the Word of God deals with is crucial in one way or another. But this, this is an issue that is so crucial for us personally because we're all sexual beings. It's, it, it's crucial because we're all broken sexual beings. And all of us have either no marriage or the marriage that is less than what God would have us have because of the reality of our fallenness. None of us have a perfect experience in the area of human sexuality. It's all broken on a continuum and all for us who belong to Jesus Christ is being redeemed. But it's difficult. Um, This is also a crucial area because the world we're in is in the West is quickly setting a line of demarcation between what they consider truth and what they consider love and what the Bible considers truth and what the Bible considers love. And, and those two positions are, are coming in increasing, gr- are becoming increasingly opposed to each other. And the hostility towards a biblical worldview of sexuality is increasing. I can't tell you how many articles and you probably similarly I've seen in the last just the last two weeks about an Australian football player kicked off his team a women's soccer team who, lady who wouldn't wear the jersey and it caused an uproar because she wouldn't wear this jersey or uh, a man from the UK who finally the U- U- UK's version of the Supreme Court gave him back the right to go back to the school he was kicked out of because he expressed displeasure at um, or he expressed what he believed he expressed God's view on homosexuality etc. I just saw that there was a huge conference in Texas, <laughs> a, a creative community conference designed to bring different creative people together in, in, in corporations and in nonprofits and just talk about the creative work of building community and, and having a creative community. One of the speakers they invited was a guy from uh, Matt Chandler's church, the Village Church in Texas, which is a gigantic megachurch, and he was the director of communications. And when a group found out what Matt Chandler's church, the positions they hold on biblical sexuality, which is 2,000 years old, which is traditional biblical sexuality held by the Catholic church, every Orthodox Protestant church, and every Orthodox Greek church, they, they protested, and he got kicked out of the conference. This wasn't some far left-wing, you know, very strange, radical conference. It was a, just a conference on creativity and community. And they said, you can't come because you're a bigot essentially, and you're hostile to, to tolerance. And so th- this isn't, apart from God's miraculous working in our culture, this isn't going to get better. It's going to get harder from an earthly point of view. And you, and especially if you have children, your children are going to have to decide what do they think about human sexuality. 
And your children are having to decide whether they believe God about this at the cost of friends, at the cost of jobs. And maybe, maybe at some point for pastors, <laughs> at the cost of prison. Or for anyone who wants to preach the gospel. At the cost of money, at the cost of lawsuits. So it's a really, really big deal that you guys grapple with this right now and you grapple with what's coming because unless God changes things, it's going to get harder for us. And God's sufficient for these things. He's able, but he wants us to be smart. He wants us to be devoted to him and he wants us to be faithful to him, both for his glory, for the fact that his claim on our lives is, is, is complete, but also because he loves the people that hate him. He loves the people who are rebelling against him. And he needs people who are going to speak the truth and love to them, who are willing to lay down their lives to speak the truth and love at great cost. That's always been the way it's been for the gospel. You know, we've, we've lived for a couple of centuries, for many of us, um, I'm not speaking of, for instance, the African-American community, but for many of us, we've lived a different kind of, of oppression-free life in the United States since its founding when it comes to religious persecution. And that was one of the reasons why, of course, the nation was founded, one of, one of several different reasons. But the point is, things are changing quickly, and we have to be prepared. And so this has such relevance to us. Having said that, that's not at all like where I feel led to bring us at the beginning of this. As I said to you guys last week, what, what I feel like on my heart that God really wants to do with this section on human sexuality is before we get into the nitty-gritties and the details of singleness and celibacy and and issues of, of morality and sexuality. I, I felt super burdened, and I continue to feel it, that God wants me to try to explain and try to proclaim the whole point of sexuality for us. The whole point of sexuality. And the whole point of sexuality is that it's supposed to tell us something about him. It's supposed to tell us something about his heart for us. Marriage, one flesh union, it's a metaphor. In the Bible, from beginning to end, from the Garden of Eden to the final consummation at Christ's second coming and the marriage supper of the Lamb, marriage is a metaphor. Sexuality is a metaphor. And what I have felt so burdened by the Lord, and I'm so grateful, is that He wants you to understand what our broken sexuality, what our broken marriages, what our old marriages that are no longer, or what the marriages we don't have yet, or are in trouble or in difficulty. <sighs> that he's still trying to speak to us through the longings we have. And through the grieving of the brokenness, he's trying to tell us something beautiful and something wonderful that we don't have yet completely here, but we're going to. And we have taste of it now. So, without further ado, Let's get into our text this morning again, and let's, let's pray. And this is the same text we looked at last week, and we're going to talk about different things regarding it, I promise, but it is the same text. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being able to be with your people, being able to be alive right now, to have life, being able to touch these holy things with hands that in myself are unholy. But you have made us holy. You have covered us with your son's blood. And so in the shadow of your wings, through the curtain that's torn, we come before you this morning and ask you to pour your spirit your anointing over all we're going to look at and think. Help me, Lord God, to fear you and honor you, that I might love you and love your people. Give me grace to know what to say and what not to say. Even this prepared text is before you and it belongs to you. Give me wisdom. Help me, God, not to be caught up in my ownness, but in you. And to be able to serve your people and honor you, Lord. You are holy. You have condescended to bring your holiness upon us through the death of your son. Who took our unholiness upon him to make us holy. So please, Lord, in our experience, make this a holy and sacred time. And show yourself. And have mercy on me, sinner. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Remember we saw two weeks ago, if you were here, we saw that Paul tried to pastor this church out of sexual morality. He dropped this theological bomb right in the middle of our passage. Trying to explain the way to result of, of any sexual union, he quotes Genesis 2, 24. For it is written that two will become one flesh. And then in a flash, so quick you can miss it, as I said, he drops this nuclear bomb right after that. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He connects the one flesh reality of sexual union between a man and a woman in Genesis 2, between Adam and Eve, with its parallel union in the spirit realm between Jesus and his people. For it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And I sought to persuade you two weeks ago to see that what Paul is doing with these two verses is reminding us that the one flesh union in sexual intimacy in marriage is meant to be a living picture of Christ's spiritual union with his people. Paul is even more explicit about this in Ephesians 5, where after giving instructions to husband and wives, all based on Christ's relationship with the church, he pulls the curtain back wide on what earthly marriage means. And he says in Ephesians 5, we are members of his body. 
This is there for you, Ephesians 5. Let's go forward one. Next slide, please. We are members of his body. And Paul is speaking of the church as being Christ's very body. And then he says this, quoting Genesis 2 again. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul goes absolutely explicit on this. When he pulls the curtain back, he says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul is being very explicit. He's saying, listen, the gift of human sexuality, in that gift, there is another gift. There is a greater gift. God is trying to tell us through human sexuality, and yes, it's broken, and yes, we struggle, but his intention is to tell us through human sexuality about who he is and who we are to him. So I'll say it again, like I said two weeks ago, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're divorced, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're same-sex attracted, whether you're struggling with pornography, wherever you are on the difficult highway of human sexuality, the message of the Bible is that first, primarily, marriage and sexuality isn't mainly about your passion, your desire, or even your brokenness. It's first about God's passion and desire for you. And in all our brokenness, that is a refuge. In all our longings, in all our failings, that is a refuge. Because we know deep inside it was meant to be something beautiful and something glorious. It was meant to tell us something beautiful and something glorious, and it still does. If I'm going to give you a beautiful diamond ring and I describe it imperfectly, it doesn't change the fact that the diamond ring is still gorgeous. So our broken sexuality might describe the diamond ring poorly, but the diamond ring is still perfect and it is still for you wherever you are. We talked last time about what we learn about God and his passion for us through intimacy, through the sexual expression that he gave humans to live out. We learned first that one flesh oneness is meant to be exclusive oneness. One flesh oneness between a man and woman is meant to be exclusive because our God is our only God. Remember when God said in the first commandment, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. We talked about God's jealousy for us, jealous for our hearts. Paul says, I feel a divine, a divine, a jealousy from God for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, he says to Corinthians. Paul says God is jealous for our devotion to him. And this exclusive commitment in marriage is meant to show us that God is to be our only God, that he is our only savior, that the gospel is our only gospel, and he's jealous for our hearts. Second, one flesh oneness in marriage is meant to be lasting oneness because Jesus' commitment to us lasts, because Jesus is eternally faithful to us. In Genesis 2, it says of husbands, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. 
hold fast. There was no letting go for Adam while Eve breathed. He was to be there each day, each morning, and each evening. Till death do his part is not a man invention. It's an expression of the divine will for marriage. That is to reflect Christ's undying, everlasting commitment to us. We looked at Jeremiah 31 where God proclaims Israel's unfaithfulness to the covenant that he made on Mount Sinai with Moses. And he says to them, I have loved you with an everlasting love. In contradiction to your love for me. Therefore, though, he says, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Jesus Our Redeemer husband has never left us. He never will leave us. And though gone physically, he is with us through his indwelling Holy Spirit. His commitment to us never ends. And so one flesh marriage sexuality finds its only right fulfillment in a marriage covenant in which the husband and wife give themselves to each other alone and only forever till death do them part. Because that's what God does with us. Third, one flesh oneness is to be loving because every act of Jesus towards us is love. We looked at Ephesians 5, this beautiful picture of roles. But underneath roles is this engine of love that's supposed to drive it all. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He gave up everything to make her beautiful. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own self, but nourishes and cherishes it. So Paul explains, Jesus loves the church. He cherishes her. He nourishes her. He washes her. He feeds her. He protects her. And so that's how God calls me to be a husband to my wife. Yes, I'm her head. I'm supposed to lead her. I'm supposed to be the authority in the home. But any authority that's driven by selfishness loses its blessing and its endorsement from the Lord. So today we're going to talk about another way that one flesh oneness is supposed to express God's posture towards us. And it's, it's, it's a little bit more sensitive than these other ways we've talked about today. Because we're going to talk about the actual emotional aspect of sexuality. So my main point today is just simply this. Number four, one flesh oneness, and this is the only one we're going to have today. One flesh oneness is meant to bring us delight and joy because our union with God is meant to give us delight and joy. And please remember the, the, the big picture here. You may not be married right now, so you don't have a one flesh oneness situation that can bring you delight and joy. You can just long for it right now. And you might be in a terrible marriage right now, a broken marriage, and you're not experiencing this. And that needs care. But that's not what I'm trying to say primarily this morning. I'm trying to prove to you that the, that the love that you wish you had maybe <laughs> or the love that's so imperfect in your life right now 
is pointing you towards the certainty of a perfection of love that God has for you right now and will bring you more in eternity and that that's where we're to set our hope. One flesh oneness is meant to bring us delight and joy. We all understand that about marriages, whether you're a Christian or you're not. But what we get to understand is that it's meant to do that because our union with God is meant to give us delight and joy. Is there anything less needful of saying in our world than that sexual pleasure is pleasurable? <laughs> like, right? Like our fallenness, our sin has allowed it to become deeply dangerous in its consuming nature. But this is not because sexual experience is wrong to be full of desire and longing and attraction. It's not wrong that sexual expression is and can be exceedingly pleasing. We don't need to blame the pleasing nature of sexuality on the way that our sinful hearts have made it to be so destructive in our lives. Because from the beginning, God meant it to be full of longing and full of pleasure. Because this longing and this pleasure speaks to how we were made even before the fall. It speaks to deep desires that are good and it is meant to fulfill those desires in ways that nothing else in this world does. A given, that's a before the fall picture, right? The truth is that, that thoughts that sexual pleasure is bad or should be rejected have plagued religions all over the centuries and philosophies and Christianity is not immune from this at all. But nothing could be further from God's intention than the idea that sexual pleasure is wrong or is simply an effect of the fall. We can abuse God's design for it. We can steal it from God and make it another God. But sexual pleasure is meant to be, for many of us, a great gift from a God who means us to know through it that he is a God of pleasure and joy and delight. Most of you know that at the very heart, pretty much at the very middle of the Bible, is called a book called The Song of Solomon. I, I think I even remember, well, I, I, won't, I won't go into that aspect of it, but th this short book is filled with very obvious and very colorful, extremely celebratory images and metaphors that rightly understood would make a lot of us blush right now, red, with its pictures of sexual joy. God's not a prude. He's just classy. <laughs> He's not afraid of sexuality. He just doesn't prostitute himself about it and throw it all over the place in unbecoming ways. But he made it. And he cares about it. Proverbs isn't too shy to tell husbands, to command husbands, to be delighted and intoxicated with his wife's body, with his, her gift of physical intimacy. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't we be running and say, oh, wait, 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 that's too much. Are you intoxicated with your wife's beauty? Are you intoxicated? Aren't you supposed to be only passionate about God that way? Proverbs says, no, you're, you're not wrong. It doesn't last forever. It doesn't satisfy completely, but in the right way, in the right time for many men, they're called to be intoxicated with their wife's beauty 
and the gift of physical intimacy. So there's much in scripture that seeks not only to help us safeguard sexuality, but commends it and commands us to find joy in it. John Piper points out in his book, which is my favorite book on marriage, it's called This Momentary Marriage. It's not perfect, I don't agree with everything he says, but I agree with the, the main thrust of it all and the, the way he says it is so faithful to scripture. But he points out, God could have made sexual intimacy in marriage something neutral. You know, like, like a bodily drive, like having to go to the bathroom. I mean, it's, it's an okay experience. <laughs> but the problem is more with what happens if we don't do it than when we do do it, right? He's saying God could have just made sexual morality like that. Oh, we gotta do this because if we don't, it's gonna be, feel very unpleasant in my tummy, <laughs> you know? He could have done that. It would have served the purpose of procreation fine. But he didn't do this. He made our hearts long for intimacy, physical intimacy. He made our bodies in a way to make it feel deeply pleasing. Why did he do that? Of course, he wanted offspring, and he loves to give good gifts to us. He wanted us to experience joy. But we know all of creation is proclaiming the glory of sexuality, taste buds, beautiful art, good sunsets? No, all of creation, all of creation is proclaiming the glory of God. Thank you, Adair. <laughs> God is stronger than armies, but he calls himself a great warrior. God is wiser than the cunning snake. And he calls the serpent the wisest and craftiest of all creatures. God is deeper than any ocean, but he uses oceans to communicate his deepness. He's higher than any mountain, but he uses mountains to communicate his majesty. He's brighter than any sun, but he uses sun and stars to communicate his glory. He's bigger than the expanse of the universe which he stretched out. <laughs> but he uses the bigness of a night sky to hit us with the gravity of his power and his immensity. Everything God has made, rightly understood, always points to something about who he is. So you see where I'm going with this. This longing for, this delight in, this pleasure of romance and sexual intimacy, it's pointing to something far greater and far better than it itself is. And that's why, as broken as your marriage might be, there's a rescue. <laughs> Psalm 16, you make me know the path of life. Can we project this? Psalm 16 is up here. Thanks, Logan. I know you're doing this without a sermon, which is my fault. So thank you for cooperating. But listen, 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 listen. Psalm 16, just listen to the psalm. You make me known, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is holiness. There is, oh no, I'm obliterated. There is, I'm a man of unclean lips. There is dread and fear and thunder and lightning. Yeah, yeah. Potentially, <laughs> certainly without Christ. 
But with Jesus Christ, what is there? In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth has nothing I desire beside you. Did Asaph want water? Did he want eggs? <laughs> Did he want his kids to hug him? I'm sure he wanted all those things. But he, Asaph is saying, comparatively speaking, those people with the fancy cars and the houses <laughs> and, and even everything I've got in my bank account and my greatest affection from my wife last night, physical intimacy, date night, kids who are all doing what they should do. He says, on earth, I have nothing in comparison. Nothing that I desire beside you. Nothing that I should worship. Nothing that I ought to obey. Nothing that deserves my love more. No, he says, I desire nothing more than you. I want you. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. There's a lot of ways to exegete that. I, I do think it includes good things that God can give us because we're worshiping him and we're so delighted in him. He can give us all kinds of other things because now we're so delighting in him that it's not wrong for him to give us this or that, promotion, boyfriend, girlfriend. You know, but, but the point is, God is delightful. He's, he's not just holy. He's not just awe-striking. He's, if you know him rightly, he's delightful. Proverbs 10, 28. The hope of the righteous brings justification, sanctification, holiness, vindication. The hope of the righteous brings joy. Joy. Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, David's not in the desert literally writing this. He's not longing for a plumbing system that works. He's in a place where his heart knows the pleasures and delights of God, but doesn't have them right now. And he is panting after that which his soul loves more than anything, which his soul enjoys and delights in more than anything, more than women or children or homes. And he says in verse three, your steadfast love is better than life. I like some translations that I've just heard that say, your, your love is better than my life. Like when I've got you in my heart, it's better than Whatever else is going on out here. Nehemiah 8 has this beautiful picture of the Israelites who are putting the city back together again, recovering the Bible, essentially their Old Testament. And Nehemiah reads to the people and they realize all that they've been missing because they've ignored the covenant and that at some point they lost track of it completely over centuries, aspects of it. And now Nehemiah is reading them all that God had commanded them and they're realizing how they've not seen this, not heard this, all that God meant for them to have, all the warnings, all the promises, all the dignity and glory of majesty that God reveals in his word about who he is, and they, they're hearing it as if for the first time, and they're just grieved. 
They're just grieved because they haven't seen him like this. They haven't realized his holiness and his beauty. They haven't served him as he should be served. And they're rent in their hearts. And God says, does the sweetest thing imaginable to his returning bride. He says, in the midst of their mourning, he says through his prophet, he says, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. They had so much to mourn over, so much sin, so much lostness, so much brokenness. But as they're returning to him, God runs out like the prodigal father and he says, no, 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 no. You're coming back to me. We're healing here. Don't you be overcome with despair. Rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice in me. That's your strength. We hear that in the Lord's words, right? This son of mine was dead, but he's alive. We must rejoice. We had to throw a party. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. They said, okay, we are going to make great rejoicing then. John 15. Listen to this. Listen to the heart of our Savior. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you do not go to hell. I have told you these things so that you won't turn out to be a counterfeit disciple. I have told you these things so that God's wrath won't come upon you. I have told you these things so that I might get glory in the world. I have told you these things so that you might surrender your life and others might be saved through your sacrificial agape lifestyle. All true in their place, but in the intimacy with his best friends, the night he's betrayed, he says, this is why I've told you these things. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you. And your joy may be complete. What does Jesus want for you, church? What does he want for me? I don't see this very well. Preaching this has made my heart, preparing for this message has made my heart so happy. Because I don't see this very well. And I want to communicate it well so that your heart will be happy too. Because maybe you, like me, don't see this very well. Jesus wants joy for you. Jesus is interested in your joy. Listen, when he says this kind of thing, we need to be careful not to overqualify it. Like, you know, when God says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, I will hear theologians say, well, God, in some sense, that's true, 
but God really is about his own glory. And so he gave his son so that he might be glorified or so that God's justice might be vindicated. And there are other passages to use to say things like that. But when Jesus says, God loved you so much that he gave his only son, he doesn't want you qualifying that. He wants you hearing, my father loves you so much that he gave his only son for you, full stop. And the same is true here. Why do I want you to keep my commandments and remain in my love so that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be complete? In Matthew 25, God, through his son, gives various pictures of the judgment that's coming upon everyone. And judgment is coming upon everyone. And some people are going to go to hell And some people are going to be saved and go with Christ into his presence forever. But the way that Jesus describes this transaction is not only very sobering, it's very enlightening. In the parable of the talents, for those who have used what God has given them well and stewarded their lives well and come back and say, look, you gave me five talents, I've made five more. He doesn't just say, well done, good and faithful servant. You may escape judgment. Or you may now be permitted to go into heaven and be in my presence forever. He says, enter into the joy of your master. The joy of your master. If there's one thing clear from all of these passages, and, and probably hundreds more I could read this morning, it's this. God desires your delight. He desires your joy. He desires your happiness. I don't mean in some superficial way that you can find by ignoring him as central and going after the American dream. That's not what I'm talking about. And I know most of you know that, if not everybody knows that. It's a joy oriented in him, in knowing him, in being affected by him, in being met by him, in being blessed by him, in knowing that you're covered by him again and again, cherished by him, nourished by him, pursued by him and invited into intimacy with him. Just as the union, the one flesh union of the man and the woman, it's, it's not to be separated from all these other commitments of exclusivity and faithfulness and sacrificial love and covenant marriage. So this joy that God wants us to have that, that marital intimacy and joyful pleasure is pointing to, it can't be separated from him. It's a joy and a pleasure rooted and sustained by union with him. And even now, we experience a foretaste of that joy and delight in our lives with God. Even now, I can certainly witness to this. I've been married long enough to know that of all the wonders and pleasures of of marital bliss, (laughs) physical intimacy, I know by experience the truth that God gives a pleasure and a joy in himself that I can experience even now that none of that can compare to. That nothing in this world can live up to. I know that. No food, no movie, No music, no sunset, no sexual experience 
can exceed the holy pleasure and the deep satisfaction, the lifting joy, the blessed happiness of enjoying God. And if you've been married long enough or you've experienced that aspect of human sexuality long enough and you know Jesus Christ and you've experienced him, you know this is true. No sexual experience can exceed the holy pleasure, the deep satisfaction, the lifting joy, the blessed happiness of enjoying God. John Piper has it exactly right when he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And sexual intimacy in marriage between a man representing Christ and a woman representing the church is to point us to this eternal glorious truth. There their bodies join together in a way that represents the coming together of creator and creation, of God and his people, of Christ and his bride. And it, in most cases, brings a great deal of delight, joy, and pleasure. And it is right to see that. It is right to rejoice in that. And it is most right to see that as pointed to something greater than that. It is right to see sex as not just pleasurable and delightful, but sacred because of this too, and holy because of this. Because it's joyful, and because it's so pleasurable, and because of what it is pointing to, it is right to see sexuality as holy, because it's pointing to a holy God and his holy joy. Hebrews 13, four says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. What does God mean by undefiled? Here's what he doesn't mean. Let it be free of pleasure. You better not delight in sex too much together. Let it be free of intimate physical engagement. No, he means it to be free of that which robs sexuality of its pointing to God power. Let me say that again. He means don't defile it. He means don't let your sexual expression be robbed of its God pointing to power. It's to be free of adultery because God is our only God and we're to forsake all others besides him. It's to be free of fornication and premarital sex and the despair of abandonment because God commits himself to us forever And he doesn't just love us only for a night or for a few months or years without a lifelong commitment to us. It's to be free of homosexuality because God is not us and we're not God. A husband and a husband cannot proclaim the creator and the creation coming together. A wife and a wife cannot proclaim Christ and his bride coming together. It makes the image impossible and perverts the intention. It is to be free of selfishness and lovelessness because God is always loving towards us. It is meant to be a place of compassion and love and delight and joy and happiness because God gives us delight and joy and happiness in his compassion towards us and listen folks I know that for many if not all of us in some measure our sexual lives are broken if I need to say it again I'll say it again 
we're all in, in various places of brokenness for, for various reasons and in various stages of recovery. We're in a place of longing because we do not have marriage yet at all or anymore. We're in a place of difficulty because our bodies are just not cooperating maybe as they should or maybe as they used to because we're just getting up there. It's in a place of tension because we're in a battle with our spouse or we're in a battle with desires that feel out of control or we're in a battle with desires that feel dead now. And there's so much I would want to say to you that I can't say without a great deal of more depth and careful reflection this morning without just pasting cliches over everything. But as we get to go through this book further, we'll touch on some of these things. But let me just say again that our our primary hope is that sexuality points to something better and more lasting and more delightful than itself is. So whether you're experiencing it or you're just longing for it, the thing it's pointing to is available to you now. And it itself is better than sexuality. In Christ Jesus, we can experience it now. He wants us to. And more than this, we are waiting for a fullness of what sexual intimacy points to that we will not experience in this life, no matter how good our walk with God is. We won't, we won't see all the way that we see it. I mean, I I wonder if there's a comparison between the courtship period and the actual experience of marital intimacy and marriage that that might parallel what we're experiencing now while we await our husband redeemer and the consummation at the Last Supper, the consummation at the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation. My point is, there is so much more coming than we understand or will be able to understand while on this earth that is still yet to come in terms of our joy and our delight and our ecstasy with God. In his book, Momentary Marriage, Piper writes about this. He says, it is no accident that centuries of Bible scholars construed the Song of Solomon as a story about Christ in the church. They may have been too squeamish about letting it have its natural meaning for Solomon and his bride. See, he's saying that for a long time, people looked at that book I talked about, the Song of Songs, Song of Solomons, and they looked at it as simply a non-sexual allegory between Christ and his church. And Piper is making the point that that was a, that was at least half wrong, if not fully wrong. His point was they may have been too squeamish about letting it have its natural meaning for Solomon and his bride, but but they were not wrong in seeing that the ultimate meaning of marital sex is about the final delights between Christ and his church. You don't have to be an ascetic. That means someone who lives in the desert and gives gives up everything. You don't have to be an ascetic. You don't have to be afraid of the goodness of physical pleasure to say that sexual intimacy get their final meaning from what they point to. They point to ecstasies that are unattainable and inconceivable in this life. Just as the heavens are telling the glory of God's power and beauty, so sexual expression, <coughs> I'm using a different word than he uses there just to be careful, is telling the, see I'm so prude, <laughs> I'm so scared, Ooh, I'm very Victorian in, in this moment. <coughs> John Piper is bolder than I am. Sexual expression is telling the glory of immeasurable delights that we will have with Christ in the age to come. There will be no marriage there as we know it, but what marriage meant will be there. And the pleasures of marriage 
10 to the millionth power will be there. The pleasures we will experience there are of such a kind that if God tried to explain them to us now, it would be like trying to explain sexual pleasure to a five-year-old. The child might nod his head. (laughs) My kids would go, ew. (laughs) But then he would say, pass the peanut butter, please. (laughs) Sexuality is a gift, but it's a gift from one who is greater than it is. Our world cannot see this. They do not see this. And I'm not saying we're superior. We're blessed because we can see it, because we can taste it. And so the world we're living in and the world that still tries to grab our hearts, it, it cannot help but worship a pleasure that is meant to be so powerfully reflective of that greater pleasure that God gives in himself. You see, the... The world cannot help but worship a pleasure like sexuality because it is meant to so powerfully reflect the greater pleasure that God gives and will give us as he gives us himself in union. The pleasure of sexual union is reflecting a far greater pleasure of spiritual union that we have in Christ. And the world can only see the thing. The world can only see the description on the piece of paper. But that itself is so powerful that we sell out for it. And, but you and I in Christ Jesus, we possessed in him through the power of the Holy Spirit the capacity for a greater pleasure and delight even now. So I just, I have this sense that I'm beginning to repeat myself. But I hope you've gotten the gist of, of what I'm trying to say and I just want to close with this. Can you now, even in this moment, see in your heart afresh that God is a God of delight, that he is a God of pleasure, that he's a God of joy, and that he wants to give you that in him? Regardless of where you are in your marriage or you're not married, He is a God of joy and pleasure and delight, and he wants to give you that in him. Whether we get to enjoy the metaphor that sex is supposed to be in all its fullness or not, let's follow the metaphor to what it points to. Paul had no wife. Jesus had no wife. They had no problem with experiencing what the metaphor was pointing to and being very full. And being very satisfied, more than probably any of us ever are. And so, I just want to tell my own soul and tell you, let us seek the joy and the pleasure and the delight of God. Let us seek the joy and the pleasure and the delight of God. Let's cry out to him for it. Let's ask him for it. Do a very basic thing that a bride might do with her loving husband. Can I have your company? Can I have your, will you show me your love? Will you show me that you, you long to be with me, that, that you want to bring me joy? Can we tell him of our longings for him? Can we confess our deadness to him and that we wish to be made alive again to him? And can we give ourselves to him in time 
intimate time with him. There might be things in your life that just aren't working out for you. And it might be because God is trying to bring you through trial to mature you. But it might be simply because you're just not honoring him with your time. And he's jealous for you. And he's frustrating your attempts to honor yourself with your time. And he's stealing your sleep. He's stealing your job situation. He's stealing whatever it might be. Because you won't give him your heart. And he longs for that. And I don't know if that's what's going on in your life. But it's not unheard of for the Lord to discipline the child he delights in. To say, why are you giving yourself to all these things and ignoring the lover of your soul? Let's fight to give ourselves to those things which maximize our experience of him. Let's daily confess our sins to him and keep short accounts to him and to one another if we need to be so that there are not barriers to our intimacy with him. Let's daily come back to the grace of the gospel of his son which allows us to be naked before him and unashamed, known in all of our struggle and all of our failings, not needing to cover up before him but reveal ourselves to him in intimacy, knowing that he covers us and he puts his blanket over us. Let's depend on him to be our husband redeemer, our strength, as we're the weaker vessel, so that we're looking to him always to provide and protect and nourish and cherish us. That means taking our worries and our anxieties and dumping them on him instead of keeping them on ourselves. I love Psalm 68.2 or 62.8, 62.8. I've had cause to recite this to myself and to others this week. Our God is a refuge. Trust him at all times, O peoples. How do we do that? Pour out your hearts to him. Do you hear that? God is a refuge. Trust him. How? How do we experience his refuge? How do we experience and live out that trust? Pour out your hearts to him. He wrote that. Like that's not David's idea. That's what he's telling you he wants, he longs for, he's jealous for you to not carry your burdens and your worries and your frustrations, but to bring them to your husband redeemer and collapse in his arms. First Peter 5 says it this way, humble yourself under God's mighty hand, casting all your burdens upon him. Let's depend on our husband redeemer to be our strength, our nourisher, our provider, our protector. And, and depending on his spiritual power that we don't have, depending on his promises to, to get us out of temptations and to provide way outs in our weakness, depending on his throne of grace and mercy that's always available to us for the power we don't have in ourselves, let's follow our husband 
Let it be uncluttered and unblocked by unfaithfulness. He's a faithful husband. He wants us to be a faithful bride. So let's bring our sins to him and let's daily depend on him for the power we don't have to avoid those sins and to follow him into good works because he tells us that his spirit will lead us if we'll trust him to. And we have a gentle and humble husband who says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The intimate picture of the bedroom of a man and his bride. And the act of making love is a beautiful, wonderful gift which many of us experience in broken ways or don't experience. But the beauty of it that we long for is telling us something about our God's longing for us, his delight in us, his desire for us. That's who he is. That's what marriage is meant to say to us, even if we don't have it. Let's go to him like that. He's not shy. He gave us these images and these pictures. 